Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Thursday, August 4th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. As the Fed tries to combat inflation by raising interest rates and cooling down the economy, it risks moving us into a recession and causing a big spike in unemployment. Now, there's a fight brewing on how big the jump could be, or if it will be more of a soft landing like the Fed wants. As it stands now, there has been a small drop in job openings, but there's still roughly two jobs open for each unemployed worker. Courtney Brown, economics reporter at Axios, joins us for the inflation versus jobs fight. Next, when it comes to student debt, the fastest growing demographic of borrowers are those aged 62 and older. Of the 45 million Americans who have student debt, one in five is over 50, and we have seen their student loan balances increase over 500%. One example of how bad it can get, a woman took out a $29,000 federal loan in 1983. She is now 91 and owes more than $329,000. Eleni Shermer, organizer with the Debt Collective and contributor to The New Yorker, joins us for how more Americans are aging into their debt. It's News Without the Noise. Let's dive in. We are seeing a slowing in the economy and in demand that's appropriate and necessary to um, transition from rapid growth and recovery from uh, a serious job shortfall to now a very strong labor market. Joining us now is Courtney Brown, economics reporter at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Courtney. Thank you for having me. Well, let's talk about inflation right now, what's going on and how the Fed is trying to fight it, trying to bring that down. One of the things that always happens, you know, they they raise interest rates, all this stuff. One of the other things that happens a lot of times when uh, we hit a recession, things like that, is uh, a rise in unemployment. And right now there's this big conversation about whether what the Fed is doing will cause a spike in unemployment. And there's um, cases on both sides. The Fed thinks that they can do it without causing too much pain in the job market. On the other side, we got economists who just think that this is the one of the only ways that it's going to happen. So, Courtney, what are we seeing with all this? So this is a really, really nerdy fight that naturally is playing out in nerdy academic papers, but it's a really, really important debate. Basically, you have the Federal Reserve working aggressively to bring up interest rates in an attempt to cool down inflation, which is rising at the fastest pace in 40 years, in many, many people's lifetimes, really. And a natural side effect of that is bringing demand down. And when that demand comes down, employers pull back 
on hiring or even let some workers go. That's what's happened in previous cycles. And the Fed is arguing now that the labor market is so strong, it's actually fueling to a certain extent inflation and demand needs to cool off. But they're convinced that they can uh, work to bring down inflation without hurting the labor market too much. So that's one side of the argument. On the other side of the argument, you have other economists who are looking at the Federal Reserve's actions from previous economic cycles, and they're saying this has never happened before. What you're saying can happen has really never happened before. And there's no reason to think that it can happen now. One of the things, uh, to your point about the, the, the job market and everything right now, we're seeing that uh, job openings did kind of drop a little bit. And they're still at some of their highest levels ever, though. And what we have is really roughly two open jobs for each unemployed worker, which is also something that really has not happened before as well. The latest data that came out um, this week shows that that number has fallen to roughly 1.8 open jobs for every unemployed worker, which is still, when you look at the time series, this data has been coming out since 2000. That's never been seen before. So you're witnessing a labor market that may be loosening up a little bit, but it is still extraordinarily tight. And that's something the Fed is watching really, really closely. Because the labor market is so tight, you know, I'm sure many of your listeners can relate to this. The labor market is so tight, companies are having such a hard time finding workers that they're ne- they're needing to bid up wages in order to attract the type of workers they need. And this is something that the Fed is watching closely because, you know, there is a sense that this is contributing to some of the inflationary pressure that we're seeing. And then so what are we going to see with unemployment as uh, this kind of goes on? Uh, There's, I guess, a few economists were uh, shooting back in a paper that they published, you know, basically saying that even if we get a a decline in job vacancies, let's say down to 4.6 percent from 7 percent is what they were looking at. It's going to push employment up by one percentage point, which would still leave it at a very, very low, uh, historically low level, you know. Uh, So the, the unemployment impact isn't even that big. So it's really important to note that at the heart of this debate, it's not a question about whether the unemployment rate is going to go up. The Fed readily admits that the unemployment rate will probably go up as it fights inflation. What they're fighting about is how sharply the unemployment rate will have to rise. And the paper you're referencing was authored by one of the governors of the Federal Reserve Board, and he's saying that Yes, the unemployment rate will rise, but it will still be at a historically low level. Now, they admit that that any rise in the unemployment rate is harmful to households, right? I mean, if you lose your job, that's hard for you know families to deal with. But they're saying that the rise in the unemployment rate won't be as painful as in previous economic cycles when the Fed has started raising rates. You know, you hear a lot of times when uh, the Fed is talking about things that they keep talking about this soft landing. You know, if we go into a recession, they're hoping that it's just a soft landing. It's not going to be as bad as as it could possibly be. And that's why these figures on unemployment are so important. And you also mentioned in uh, your latest piece about some caution signs in manufacturing. And this is kind of where we don't really know exactly where we are. There's some parts that are still kind of in, uh, in growth mode. There's other parts that are contracting. So you know, have we hit that recession just yet? It's kind of in the middle. Uh, Some parts, yes, some parts, no. 
Right. To be clear, the way that recessions are determined in this country is a group of economists and academics get together and they evaluate a range of indicators to decide whether or not the U.S. has entered a recession. Now, what's really unfortunate for nosy people like myself, reporters like myself, (laughs) is often these calls don't come out until, you know, after a recession has already started. So if we are in a recession, which there are many economists who say we are not currently in a recession, but if we are, it wouldn't be deemed as such until, you know, several months after. But you're right. There is some, you know, high frequency data that's coming out that shows, you know, some cautionary signals about the manufacturing side of the of the economy. But at the same time, we got some new data recently that showed that the services side of the economy is doing like quite well. And this is kind of a story that's something that's become like a story of the pandemic. You know, we were home for a stretch of time and we were ordering things on Amazon. We were ordering lots of goods. We were redecorating our homes, our apartments. And, you know, that type of demand for goods has cooled down a lot as the economy is opened back up. And so what you're seeing now is maybe people are spending less money on goods than they did in the past, but they're splurging on travel. I mean, I'm sure you've seen the crazy stories Uh around traveling these days and they're spending on hotels. So the services side of of the economy is getting a really, really big boost. And as far as we can tell, still looks pretty strong. So I think the question is this at this point is, has demand load enough in a way that has tipped the economy into a recession. And what it looks like right now is no. But again, there are a group of academics who will get together and and look at a range of indicators and decide whether or not the U.S. is in a recession. Courtney Brown, economics reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Mini Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We should be eliminating interest on the debts that are accumulated, number one. And number two, I'm prepared to write off the $10,000 debt. Joining us now is Eleni Shermer, organizer with the Debt Collective and contributor to The New Yorker. Thanks for joining us, Eleni. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. 
there's a lot of conversations about student debt going on right now, student loan debt. Obviously, the Biden administration is considering plans to cancel some of that. You know, there's others that have called for even more what the Biden administration is proposing to do. But when we talk about student debt, you know, you kind of always thinking of maybe people freshly out of college, maybe people 10 years down the road out of college and, you know, still trying to pay down their enormous amounts of debt. But Eleni, you wrote about the aging population who still has student debt. These people are not aging out of their student loans and paying them off. They're aging into them. And then sometimes the loan is with interest and all that is getting even bigger. So right now, Americans age 62 and older, they're the fastest growing demographic of student borrowers. There's 45 million Americans who hold student debt and one in five of them are over 50 years old. And their student loan balances have increased 512%. Some of these numbers throughout this entire story that we'll get into are just unbelievable. So, Eleni, tell us what's going on with this right now. I mean, you basically just summed it up that there's the fastest growing population of student debtors in America are Americans aged 62 and older. And we see that's a combination of a, of a number of factors. But the simplest way to tell that story is the loan amounts are getting bigger due to rising tuition, due to rising interest, due to faulty relief mechanisms, and people's ability to pay down those loans due to depressed wages, due to erosion of labor protections and union jobs is getting harder to manage those. So when you stretch that, those factors, the bills getting higher and people's ability to pay getting lower, lower over years and years and years, it begins to make a little bit more sense, this sort of counterintuitive population of this counterintuitive finding that older folks right. are actually becoming student debtors at the fastest rate. There's so much to cover in this, but let's start off with an example here. You profile a woman named Betty Ann. She wanted to go to law school at the age of 52. This was in 1983, and she took out a loan for $29,000. Right now, she's 91 years old, and she owes $329,309 in debt. How did this happen to her? I'll start by saying it's actually harder to understand what's happened than you'd like to think. And that's because the bookkeeping and the record management for federal student loans is almost non-existent. It took me a lot of work to try to figure out how much Betty has paid on her loan since 1985 when she graduated from law school. And I couldn't find any payment records before 2010. And I know that she was making payments. According to her story and how the story was corroborated, she had been making payments prior to 2010, but there was no record of those payments. So that's one of the problems is that there's not an accounting system yeah. for these accounts. And I guess for, for Betty in particular, it was a combination of having periods of time where it was just a punch. She was having loans that just had a punishingly high interest rate of 10%. I think her interest rate right now on her loans is 8.5%. That's just incredibly high. And on a balance that had just probably the most common factor in Betty's story. And sadly, I mean, Betty's story is tragic and infuriating, but not unique. But the real criminal actor in this, in a lot of cases, is, is the capitalized interest that happens as these loans continue to grow and fees collect on them. If perhaps you miss a payment or you go into default and that those amounts can capitalize that interest, can capitalize and then go back into the balance. And then that balance collects another interest. And when you have an interest rate of 10% or 8.5%, yeah, it gets pretty big. Definitely. And, you know, to your point about how the Department of Education 
runs all of this stuff. There was a GAO, Government Accountability Office, report that said that the student loan bookkeeping is just horrible right now. And, you know, like any bank, you can go into there and and see what payments you've been making and and the the interest that you owe, how long it'll take you to pay it all off still. And a lot of people just can't do that with their student loans. And especially as these people are aging into them, right, and holding them for much longer, it just gets messier and messier. That's exactly right. And also the fact is, is that in the United States, we don't have a system that has a that has a lot of protections for elderly people. So folks in their last third of their life are oftentimes living on their the least amount of money that they're earning. They're living on savings. They're living on maybe scanty pensions. They're living on Social Security. And I think that's also part of what's happening is that the folks don't have a lot of resources to support these loans. There's so many older Americans that are taking on this debt. A lot of it obviously was for them, for their own education. But this is another wrinkle I had no clue about. Parents can actually take out loans on behalf of their child or grandchild. There's a program called Parent Plus, and really there's no limit on that. And the interest rates are really high. The options for relief are are very few. That's another thing that a lot of people are getting caught up in is trying to help their children go to college. The way that the loan program is structured is that you can take on the full cost of attendance for each child for each year that they're in school. So if you have four kids and they're going to school for, I don't know, not every kid goes to school in four years to college. If that kid's in school for five years, six years, seven years, <laughs> and you have a few kids, that can become quite a hefty amount of money that you're actually, you know, it's perfectly legal for you to borrow that much money. And the Parent PLUS loans are, are really an interesting kind of category of loans because they also are sort of running at an angle to the kind of the premise behind the standard student loan. So when student loans were sur- first became a, a prominent policy feature in higher ed financing was in the 50s and very much part of the spirit of kind of education for human capital, which is another way of sort of saying by getting an education, you'll be able to be more productive in society, economically productive. And that has some rationality to it and plenty of shortcomings to it as well. But that is the kind of philosophical premise for student loans really starts to crumble for the parent plus loans because very few parents wages go up because their kid has an art history degree or an engineering degree or any degree. Their earnings are not really going to increase at all, which is a lot of the premise behind student loans and most debt, which is that you borrow this money. And because of borrowing this money, you're going to be richer afterwards. This debt now is going to unleash a future richer self. And this can really, you know, stick with people for their entire lives till the end of their lives, really. You made mention in the article that, you know, if you default on student loans, certain things like that, that can trigger the Department of Education to start garnishing tax refunds, your wages, Social Security that you've been paying into your whole life. And I mean, you have certain examples of uh, people that you spoke to that where they did that. They did just that. They started getting into their Social Security money. Right, which is really sort of a, like really A, bureaucratically complicated and B, oftentimes quite cruel. People are living on Social Security. The, the woman who I wrote about in the story was getting something close to $1,000 a month in Social Security and was paying 150 bucks a month, 100 bucks a month. It varied a little bit, but 10 to 15% of $1,000 a month were being garnished by the Department of Education for student loans that she had taken out in the 80s. I mean, it was like $9,000 that she borrowed in the 80s. And it's um, a little bit hard to see what the social benefit of that is. Right. Yeah. If the government's program to protect 
old people is being undercut by student loans? What is their program to protect old people? There's a lot being made, as I mentioned, about canceling some student debt and those loans and all that. And the people that you spoke to, these older debtors right now, how do they feel about that? I know you spoke to Betty Ann specifically for this, and she, you know, I mean, she owes three hundred and twenty-nine thousand dollars. You know, she said a reduction of ten thousand dollars, which is what the Biden administration is proposing for her. She says that's nothing. That it is nothing that will help her. That will be debt that she carries to the end of her life, pretty much. The ten thousand dollars, I think, for every single borrower I spoke to, and I spoke to far more than than I was able to talk about in the story. Most of those people had the exact same reaction as, as Betty in that story. They laughed. $10,000 does very little to address the balance of, of their loans. And, you know, one of the things that I think is, is really sort of powerful about this is that, you know, for these folks who are in the, their end of their lives or the, maybe, you know, the last third of their lives at least and are planning to die with that debt, at that point, the government will be issuing effectively a full cancellation policy that they would have had no to apply for no paperwork to administer and it wouldn't be income it wouldn't be income verified and it would be full cancellation it's just you have to die to receive that policy and which is what many of these borrowers are are staring down and so i think that's sort of the cruel irony is that there was another report that came out since the, the piece has been published but it's basically reckoning with the fact that the department of education these these loans are they're not that profitable for the, the Department of Education. The money has basically already been lent out. So to unleash the state's collection powers by clawing this money back is hard for borrowers to feel as anything other than just cruel and cruelty in the face of, you know, today rising costs, increasing instability in the political and economic world. And yet the debt collectors march on. It's, yeah. um, I think a lot of the folks who I talked to found it troubling. The other thing that I'll say, too, is that for a lot of people, you know, Betty Ann is one who comes to mind is that even if she were to have her debt canceled, how does she get that time back of all the time that she has spent not, you know, the opportunity costs of of, of that debt? Uh, how does she get the years back of living in poverty um, because in large part of this debt? Eleni Shermer, organizer with the Debt Collective and contributor to The New Yorker, Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Take care. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.